and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon and to Misrephoth Maim and to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Now skipping down to verse 16. So Joshua took this entire land and it lists the land of Canaan. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Verse 18, Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, seven years to be exact. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Deber, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. You remember Goliath of Gath. <clears throat> so Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. This chapter, for the most part, concludes the various campaigns of Israel into the land of Canaan to war against the peoples to win the land. We, we learned about the campaign in the southern portion of Canaan, the central portion of Canaan as kings gathered at Gibeon to attack them. We learned about that last week. And now into the northern kingdom, northern portion of Canaan. And Joshua has been completely faithful and, and in this chapter, he is fighting, as I've mentioned, perhaps the largest battle. He says, they're, as these people from all of these towns and areas in the northern portion of the land of Canaan, as they've gathered together to fight against Israel, they, they have stationed themselves in, for the most part, one locale. And Israel, Josh, under Joshua's command, comes against them. I would venture to say is the various points that we're going to look at today, we have probably come across them before. You would almost expect this being the largest battle that was fought, we're going to see the greatest miracle and we don't see that. We would see the greatest step of faith that Joshua makes, but we don't see that. It's almost as if God has had to work in Israel and in these things so that he is basically saying, can you do this? It's not that God wasn't going to fight them. As a matter of fact, he told them, I am going to fight you. I'm going to hand them over to you and you will slay them. But God sovereignly chose, okay, no, no big, huge miracles here. I am going to fight through you, though. And if you learn to stand your ground, and here's the operative word, in faith, then you're going to destroy them. And this is, this is like the last step in this journey, this, this huge conquest of the land of Canaan. 
And this, I believe, is, is where they exercise perhaps the most faith. And God, instead of doing miracles, he does the miracle through them. And I want us to look at three things here. First of all, and, and, and all of this comes under this heading of faith. And I'm gonna, I've entitled the, the message, The Sometimes Subtle Difference Between Failure and Success. The Sometimes Subtle Difference Between Failure and Success. As I say, basically, there is no phenomenal miracle or incredible strategy that Joshua implements, but basically the challenge is have faith. We see that there in verse six where he says, do not be afraid. And he's encouraging them in so many words, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified by them. And this is a general theme that starts in Joshua one and we see throughout the book. And now finally, Joshua, I think he's been groomed and primed and the people have been, have been sharpened and they step out into this faith. And I want us to look at three things. And if you're, if we're, if you're not careful, you kind of read through the chapter and you don't see it. But here, here's an interesting thing. I, I think sometimes it's easy for us as we read through scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course they do that. But it's almost as if these principles are, 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 are just like, like religious truths that are pious platitudes. They're, they're, well, of course, that's the way you're supposed to do it. But I want us today to, to then ask the, that big so what question. Okay, so this is what they did. How about us? Are we doing this in our daily lives? And I would venture to say many times we're not. And yet these are basic principles that we see here. The operative word again this morning is, is faith. Have faith faith but how what does that translate into what does that look like stories told about three gentlemen a a a baptist minister a presbyterian minister and a rabbi and they're going fishing and they they come to the lake and they pull out you know all of their gear and such and get into the boat and and off they go about 100 yards offshore, and they weigh anchor, and they're fishing, having a great time, and it's about lunchtime. And the one Baptist guy says, you know what? I, I, I've run out of bait, so uh, I, I need to go and get some bait. And the guy says, yeah, you do it. And so the Baptist guy gets out of the boat, and he walks across the water to the shore, gets the bait, and comes back. And the Presbyterian guy says, you know what? I, I've, I've lost all my sinkers and I need to go in and I need to get some more sinkers. So he says, I'll be right back. And he steps out of the boat. He walks across the water and gets the sinkers and comes back. And about now it's, it's lunchtime. And the rabbi's saying, uh, it's lunchtime, guys. You know what? I think I'm going to go to the car and I'm going to get our lunch. And so the rabbi, not to be outdone by the other ministers, steps out of the boat and sinks right down into the water. And the Baptist minister looks at the Presbyterian minister and he says, do you think we should show them where the rocks are? <laughs> but the truth is, for many of us, that's, that's kind of what we expect in our Christian life. We expect God is going to just make this battle, make this thing easy. And the truth is, when he does, where's the faith in this? How do we, to what degree, do we need to extend any faith or exercise any faith? I think God 
wants to tell you today, I'm sorry, but there are no stones. And yet I want you to climb out of that boat. There's no stones. Can you trust me? And we sang a song about this today. I, I, I thought that was interesting that we happen to sing this. What, what's the name of the song that we sung this morning? Oceans, there we go. I'm, I'm bad with song titles. And look around and we can be filled with fear as we look at the, the waves and such. And yet Christ is still calling us out of the boat. And to what degree are you willing to exercise faith? For in verse 7, it says, that it tells us three very simple things here. It says, number one, they came upon them suddenly at the waters of Miriam. Joshua came upon them suddenly. It says in verse 8 that he defeated them. That means he cleared the battlefield. And number three, he pursued them, which would be this sense of determination. He pursued them. I said there are three. Okay, there's four. And then in verse 8, it also says that there were no survivors. Joshua was thorough in destroying all of them. Faith then would be this sense of confidence. This suddenly coming upon them, there was no hesitation. There was a sense of confidence. We're going to do this thing, and we're going to do it right now. You know, there's no toe dipping. You understand what I'm talking about here? Many times when, we're, when, we're, when we have this huge obstacle in front of us or this huge step of faith we've got to take, we're kind of like Gideon and saying, okay, God, I tell you what, how about if you make the fleece wet this time and the ground around it dry? And we toe dip. We want to make sure if this is safe. And many times faith is, I need you to step out of the boat. Peter did not step out of the boat and try and check and look for the stones, okay? He stepped out of the boat and he walked on the water. I want us to see something here because our tendency is when we're in a battle like this to merely clear the battlefield and be content. I, I, I want to I look at that a little bit. The first point here this morning is go for God's goal. Go for God's goal. Because the truth is many times our goal is simply relief from the distractions or the discomfort that we're feeling or the trials or the tribulations or the struggles of life. The enemy's attacking us and all we want to do is we want, we want to be comfortable. We're not looking for victory necessarily. We just, we just want this problem to stop. We want the pain to stop. And God is saying, church, there's so much more that I have for you. But all we want, so to speak, is to clear the battlefield. Let's get rid of the nuisance. Let's get rid of the problem. And so we're just content, if you will, with the enemy retreating. We can have a survivor mentality rather than a success mentality. We're just so concerned about winning the battle rather than winning the war. Joshua was not content with merely routing the enemy and causing them to retreat. Number one, they could double back and fight them. Or number two, they could go back, get more resources, more people, more uh, other cities, double the size of their army and fight them the, uh, another day. But Joshua said, no. 
He wasn't content with just merely clearing the battlefield and seeing the enemy retreat. When they retreated, he pursued them. See, that's faith. That is saying, I am not content with this minor little victory. I want total victory. And I'm going to challenge you, church. Sometimes we get we get caught up in this, I just want to survive. I just want to make it through this day. I just want to make it through the week. I want to make it to the end of the month so I can pay my bills. And Jesus saying, I've got so much more for you. Faith means I am not content with merely routing the enemy. I will pursue them until they are totally destroyed. No survivors, he says. No survivors. So here's my question to you. Under this first point, what what is your goal? Go for God's goal. What is your goal? I want you to think of a, a present dilemma that you're in right now. A struggle, a problem, a goal that you believe God is pushing you towards, but you've encountered an obstacle. What is your goal? I want you to write that down in your notes there. What is your goal? And as you write that goal down, I want to ask you, is your goal simply relief from this present problem? Or is it to truly conquer? Is it truly to gain complete victory? Let's just take, for example, we desire to have a godly family. And so our goal is, I don't want there to be any more arguing. I don't want to be there any more arguing. And so we do whatever we can so that there's just no arguing. And if there's an argument, we just cut it down. But the problem is, we haven't resolved the issue. Many times, I think we're, we're wanting to put a Band-Aid on the problem. And don't get me wrong, getting rid of arguments argumentation in your home, especially between husband and wife, between parents and kids, that's, a, that's great. But that's just clearing the battlefield. That's step one. Not the enemy being routed, pursue the enemy, destroy the enemy, and that is, don't just put a Band-Aid on the problem, seek healing to the problem. If you have a tendency to argue with your spouse, And I'm going to encourage you, yeah, be the first to apologize. Step one, be the first to apologize. But is that it? Is that all that you're content with? Okay, great, we're not arguing anymore. I mean, it was great. Kudos to you. You you went, you apologized. Maybe you were only 20% wrong, but you took the high road and you went and you apologized to your spouse. But here's the truth. Why do these problems continually occur? Because you have taken the problem and you have been content with clearing the battlefield. You've been content with a retreat. You've been content with the status quo, with there simply being peace and no problems, no argumentation. But that's not what Joshua was trying to accomplish here. Let me translate Joshua's military strategy here into present-day language concerning arguments. You would want to sit down with your spouse or sit down with your children or your child and say, in this past week, there were three arguments. Can I ask you, how were you feeling? Why did you want to argue with this? Why, why did we go this direction? 
I mean, I tried to get rid of the, the argument, but there's a problem here. And I want there to be healing in this situation. I want to be healing in your heart. And maybe, parents, the healing needs to take place here. Maybe, it's, maybe there is some insecurity in here, in our hearts, that God, that Jesus is needing to heal. Go there. Ask God to show you, highlight, God, what's in here? Why am I a person who tends to always get defensive and argue? Let Jesus heal your heart. There's a lot of possibilities here that, that I'm not going to venture into, but I'm going to tell you this, that if you are regularly in the word and in prayer, you will have access to the keys, to the truths that God wants to impart to you to minister that healing. But if you are a person who fasts the word of God, you know what I'm saying? You, you tend to get not get into it on a regular basis and Sunday mornings. Yeah, that's good enough for me. I'm going to tell you what, it's not. It's not enough for me. And I'm, I'm going to suggest it's not enough for us. But as we get plugged into the word on a regular basis, it's allowing the spirit to speak truth to us. I mean, here's how it happens in my life. I, you know, I'll go through a situation. Maybe I got into an argument with my wife and the following morning. I don't know if it's because my wife prayed or what. But the following morning, there's a passage that speaks directly to my heart about this situation. It's like, great, thanks, God. I was hoping you were going to say oh, it's all my wife's fault. But now you're putting the finger on me. Ouch. And God wants to bring healing to your heart. So don't be content to just simply clear the battlefield. Don't be satisfied with simply an opportunity to witness. I mean, that's great. And, and I'm excited. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm excited when God gives me opportunities to witness. But go further than that. Pray for that person. Maybe even fast for that person that you witnessed to. There, there seemed to be an openness to the gospel. You know, if they're in your workplace and you have more opportunity to share with them, pray that God gives you those opportunities. Maybe the opportunity is only during lunchtime. Pray that God gives, gives them and you the same lunch hour. If you stagger lunches, pray that God is going to open their heart and that they would even ask you questions. Pray for them and, and aggressively pursue reaching them with the gospel. Don't just be content with witnessing. Well, let's say that they're one to Christ. I mean, that's an awesome thing in Luke 14. It's, or Luke 15, it says that, that the angels rejoice when one lost sinner comes to Christ. And, and I would rejoice with you if you had an opportunity to win someone to Christ. But don't just be content with clearing the battlefield or retreat. Go further. How about you help them win their family to Christ, their spouse to Christ, their, their extended family to Christ, their co-workers to Christ, the people in their lives. Equip them, help them, make that your goal. Don't just be content with, with one victory here in the battle because our goal should be the war, all right? God's goal is many times so much bigger than ours. It's just that we get discouraged from accomplishing that goal because of problems that we encounter. You see, God's heart for you is not just your salvation, but it's you living in the kingdom. It's you pursuing him. Most people in most churches are simply content being saved. That's it. Live life however they want. I'm saved now. It's like life insurance in the back pocket. 
or I guess more specifically, fire insurance in the back pocket, okay? All right, no, we have, you're now just beginning this phenomenal journey with Christ. There's an entire life he wants you to live passionately pursuing him. And as you encounter problems to overcome them, he wants to teach you and train you to be an overcomer. And he's wanting you to bring people with you so that not only will they gain access into heaven, but they too can be overcomers. You are just now beginning the journey. Salvation is the beginning, it's not the end. Can you imagine? I mean, I believe God has this mentality. He doesn't want just the the, the battlefield cleared. He wants to pursue the enemy, hound him, track him down until he's demolished and destroyed and there are no survivors. Can you imagine if all there was to the gospel was the cross? And God just left Jesus on the cross. But it didn't stop there, did it? Because my Bible tells me God's goal was three days later, he raised him from the dead because death, as we sing, death could not hold him down. Death was powerless to hold him and keep him in the grave. And Jesus said, I lay my life down of my own accord and I will raise it up and by the power of God in his life. Jesus was raised and this is the gospel. It doesn't just end at the cross. It is fulfilled by his resurrection. And so consequently he invites us as we enter into this relationship with God. Not only has, has the cross been applied to us and forgiveness of sins, but the power of the resurrection of Jesus now indwells us to live a victorious life don't just be content with clearing the battlefield pursue the enemy destroy him to put it another way i guess sometimes we tend to be content with pushing a boulder halfway up a hill think about that one So you're done pushing the boulder halfway up the hill. What are you going to do now? Go back down or go to the top? What's going to happen to the boulder? You understand what I mean by this. You got to push it all the way to the top, church. That is God's invitation to us. So what is your goal? What is God's goal that you have written down there? And are you pursuing that goal or are you okay with simply, simply clearing the battlefield? Number two, here's a biggie. Victory requires stamina, perseverance, endurance. It says there in verse 18, Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Seven years to be exact. Seven years. And then we find that out in, in chapter 14 as far as how long this conquest took. But Seven years. You know, many times I think we expect when we enter into this Christianity thing, this relationship with God, it's kind of like an agreement. We strike an agreement at the bargaining table. Okay, God, uh, you're going to offer me salvation and I'm going to follow you. um, And so I'm going to choose to follow you. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to make life simple for me. I want you to take care of all of my problems. And when I encounter something, I need you to take care of it like yesterday. All right? And, And... we, we have this idea that we want everything. I mean, if God's on my side, why should I be encountering problems? So, you know, when I'm talking about the victorious Christian life, I'm not saying you just have to believe and God's going to level the enemy that day. 
God wants you to learn how to fight and build spiritual muscle and strategy and determination. Endurance is where the victory is won. Endurance. Thomas Edison said this, many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Thomas Edison, who tried 2,000 times to invent the incandescent light bulb. He finally did, I guess on the 2,000th time. That leaves nine, 1,999 times in which he failed. He failed a whole lot more than he succeeded. John Maxwell says, success tends to breed complacency. Past success can be the fiercest enemy of future success. Think about that. Determination over the long haul, never giving up. For Joshua, seven years. Now, I don't know if God had forewarned him, hey, look, you know what? I'm on your side here, and I'm going to deliver the enemies into your hands. But man, it's going to be hard. There's going to be times in which you're going to be on your face saying, God, where are you? There's going to be times in which you're going to be pressing in and you're going to fast. There's going to be times in which you're going to get your mighty men together and you're going to say, you know what? We need to pray about this. This is taking longer than I anticipated, but we got to, I know that God is going to give us the victory. We just need to find a way. And there's a lot, I am sure, in the heart of Joshua because we, we, we read these chapters and we can be done them in 15 minutes, but it took seven years. When Joshua put his head on the pillow at night, what were, what were the thoughts in his head? Were there, was there ever a, a question or a wonder? God, will we lose anyone in tomorrow's battle? Because if you think that no Israelites ever lost their lives, you're greatly mistaken. There was always a cost. People did die on the battlefield. Jews did die, and yet God said, I'm on your side. I've got your back. I'm in your corner. I will fight. I will deliver them into your hands, but there's going to be a cost. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to press in. You're going to have to fight with everything in you, even to the point where he stayed the sun for an entire day. And I don't know about you, but when you're swinging a sword for an entire day, uh, Eliezer, it says he, he, he knocked down, what was it, 300 or 800? I'm, I'm misremembering the number there. And it says that the sword, because he was defending David, the sword froze in his hand. That means he, he swung that sword so long, so hard, he, his, his muscles would not let go of the sword. That is determination. Where's our determination? Where's our stamina? We just, again, we think that if God is for us, then he's just going to take care of these problems. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. If that were only the case. John Maxwell has another quote. He says, stamina comes from expecting life to be difficult. From developing the habit of overcome adversity, overcoming adversity, and from taking one more step when you think you have nothing left. 
going to read something to you. We need to get rid of excuses. We need to... Give me one second. There we go. We need to realize that when we offer excuses, because over a period of time, when we don't see victory on the horizon, because we still have to, did you realize it? And if you did, the, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can trace this, but Joshua had to pursue his enemies between 20 and 30 miles in order to destroy them. 20 to 30 miles. That means more than likely a lot of running. Has anyone here ever run 30 miles before? Has anyone ever run 20 miles before? 20 miles. Did you? Have you really? In the military. Okay. Cold. 22 miles? Good for you. Has anyone ever run that far with military gear on? A sword? A shield? Yeah, I guess you have too. A backpack. What, 40 pounds? How much was it? 20 pounds? 40 pounds? Okay. 30 pounds? Not easy. And you probably had combat boots on too, right? Ah. I was a long distance runner and, and I've never run that far. And when I would run it, you know, shorts, tank top, running shoes, as light as you can get them. You know what I'm talking about? Cole, probably you too. Uh, these guys, no? Okay, these guys, sandals. I, I don't know what, I don't know. Do they have military sandals? I, I'm not exactly sure. But the truth is, they had, they had shields and swords and lances and you name it and running 20 to 30 miles because that's what they had to do. They could not allow them to hide or regroup. They had to be totally destroyed. You know, in this process in life, as we're seeking to gain complete victory, many times we encounter numerous failures before our successes. And it's in the midst of those failures that the enemy starts really attacking us, really attacking us. And many times we come up with excuses. And here's what I'm gonna say. For us to stay the course over the long haul, to be able to learn and gain victory, we have to get rid of our excuses because excuses close the door on learning. Close the door, uh, excuse me, excuses close the, yeah, close the door on being able to grow and how to gain victory. Because as long as the problem is out there and it's not me and I'm giving excuses for why this is happening and it's out there, I'm not learning, I'm not growing, I'm not saying, God, deal with me and get rid of this junk in me. My worst enemy is me. I would venture to say that your worst enemy is you, but I'm not going to go there. My worst enemy is me, and, but the, as long as I'm putting forth excuses, I'm not going to be able to learn how to gain victory because my excuses, it's like they keep me from learning and growing and gaining the upper hand, the high ground. Um, how many, some of you may remember, that us older guys and perhaps ladies may remember a gentleman by the name of Raphael Septien. He was the Dallas Cowboys field goal kicker. Uh, very good field goal kicker, by the way. But tongue-in-cheek, he gives some excuses for missing field goals. He says, I was too busy reading my stats on the scoreboard. 
the grass was too tall. Understand in their stadium, they use artificial turf, yeah. Um, the 30-second clock distracted me. My helmet was too tight, and it was, and it was squeezing my brain. I couldn't think. And lastly, he says, no wonder I missed. You placed the ball upside down. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you think on that one. <clears throat> Complete success over the long haul can only be gained when we throw out the excuses. You know, when going back to this issue of unity and harmony in the home, as long as we feel comfortable pointing the finger at our spouse, or if you're a, if you're a child pointing the finger at your parents, or if you're a parent pointing the finger at your child, as long as you can keep doing that, you provide excuses for why this problem persists in your home, and you will not grow, and you will not gain victory. We need to get rid of the finger pointing. You know, we need to learn to persevere and press in and just have that mindset that no matter what comes down the pike, we're going to fight and we are not going to give up. I, I really enjoy Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the prime minister, prime minister of, of England in World War II following William Gladstone, and he, they nicknamed him the Bulldog. And this is what he said concerning Germany, concerning Hitler. He said, we have but one aim and one irrevocable purpose. We are resolved to destroy Hitler and every vestige of the Nazi regime. From this, nothing will turn us, nothing. We will never parlay. We will never negotiate with Hitler or any of his gang. We shall fight him by land. We shall fight him by sea. We shall fight him in the air until with God's help, we had rid the earth of his shadow and liberate its people from his yoke. Any man or state who marches with Hitler is our foe. He was the gentleman who, when asked for advice by a teen, how do you gain victory? He responded by saying, never, never. Never, never, never give up. That's who, that's who Winston Churchill was. He was a shorter gentleman who learned to be a bulldog, and he was the man that England needed at that crucial moment in World War II to gain victory. I can... Remember just, uh, I guess it was a week and a half ago, uh, Saxon came over to our house and uh, Jim was at work. I needed some help putting up uh, plywood over my windows. And I mentioned this to you last week and drilling holes in my wall was not the greatest idea. Created some water leakage into my home. But regardless, you know, I, I felt like I needed to protect the windows. The problem was about 10, 12 years ago, I had drilled these holes, filled them in, painted over them, and it was hard to find these holes that I had already drilled before. So, you know, Saxon can testify, I'm, I, this, this looks like one of the holes and I'm starting to drill it in and ah, nope, not that one because it was too hard. And I tried another hole and, and it, it just wasn't working. And I'm working on this one and 
I'm at a standstill. I'm on it like 15, 20 minutes or more, just trying to, if I can line one hole up, I can line up the rest, okay? And I can't find it. And I'm getting frustrated. And suddenly it's like the Lord says, you might want to pray. Oh, it's like voices of angels. Yes, that, of course, hello. And I'm thinking, great, Saxon's been watching his pastor drill these holes, get frustrated, and the guy hasn't even prayed once. So I, I, in my humiliation, I, I just, I said, and I said it out loud to make sure Saxon heard me, sorry. A little bit of pride there, I guess. But I just said, Lord, please, please help us find this hole so I don't drill a million holes into my house. And I looked down and I just, I put it on there and drilled and it went right into the hole. <laughs> and, and it was a little humbling experience, but it was like, you know, Mike, if you just tried it the right way, i.e. my way, things would go so much easier. But here I am trying to persevere, trying to persevere, trying to persevere. And then I prayed and boom, there we go. You know, I, I think that God wants to really challenge us to learn how to press in. But one last thing in, with regard to pressing in. It says that in verse 21, at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country. Now, we're going to look at the Anakites a little closer next week. But the Anakites, if you were to reference them from Numbers 13.33, it says the Anakites were Nephilim. Do you know who the Nephilim were? The Nephilim, that, that name Nephilim means fallen ones. They were the giants in the land. Um, Goliath was a Nephilim. There were Nephilim before the flood. There were Nephilim after the flood. In all honesty, side note, the only thing I can figure is the genes of Nephilim. Uh, and, and I take it for what it's worth. I don't believe that the fallen angels had sexual intercourse with daughters of men and produced the Nephilim. I don't feel that's the way the scripture reads there in Genesis 6. There's some people who have come up with that theory and, and believe that. That's, that's fine. I, I do believe, though, that it was the godly men who went in unto the ungodly women, the line of Cain, and the result of which as was a generation because of this intermarriage that completely apostatized and walked away from God, completely. Never in the history of man have we ever seen such an apostasy so that only eight people on the face of the earth truly believed in the one true God, only eight, only eight. Look around the room, there's a whole lot more than eight. But in Noah's day, that's all there were. <clears throat> As Noah is building the ark, and this has taken place, I'm going to call the great apostasy is taking place at this time, the scriptures simply say, and the Nephilim were on the earth at that time. That's all that it says. It doesn't say that they're the offspring of these uh, relationships. But my point is simply that because of these giants and the violence that they produced and that they were looked at as the, this is what the scriptures tell us, they were looked at as the heroes of their day, but they were called Nephilim, which again means the fallen ones. They were wicked men. They had probably gained fame from battles. 
They would probably uh, gain a reputation through their violence. They were, they were ungodly people, but they were huge in stature. Goliath was one of them. We read about David slaying Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Four of David's mighty men each slew a giant similar to Goliath. The Anakites were such a, a, a race. They lived in the land of Canaan. If you go back to Numbers 13, it was the giants in the land, the huge guys. Now, Goliath measured nine and a half feet tall. It's because of people like this, and, and not just people, but races of this stature, that the Israelites came back and said, you know, I know God's given us the land, but we can't take the land. They're, they're huge. If we even stand up against them in the church, they would be taller than this or about the size of this ceiling. This ceiling right here is 910. This ceiling is nine feet. Can you imagine looking up at your aggressor with sword in hand like this, trying to kill him? You're about a quarter his weight if you're my size. And, and these guys were huge. But here is Joshua. We're going to look at Caleb next week. But here's Joshua saying, okay, we've wiped out all these people, but there is one more people that we need to wipe out. Guess who they are? They are the Anakites. They are, the, they are from the Nephilim stock. They are giants, and it's now time to take them down. Now, because I'm going to be preaching on that next week, I want us to focus on one thing about this. As you go through life, you will encounter not just obstacles, but huge obstacles that seem immovable. Boulders that are in your way that there is just no way for you to be able to move them. You cannot push them over. And I don't know about you, but in my life, I have encountered obstacles just in my business. And it's like, there's no way that we can overcome this problem. There's no way. But in my business, I, that is not a luxury for me to just say, okay, I can't do it. You know, I'll just give it to the body shop. You know, I did that the very first time when I started this business in, in another state working for somebody. The first job I ever did, I had to turn it over to the body shop. They wanted me to repair a large front door of a sports car that was red and it was new. And so it had to be absolutely perfect and I could not make it absolutely perfect. We got kicked off the lot. How about that for the first time that you step out into a business to try and earn some money and you get kicked off the lot? Well, that was me. And so that, that's not an option with my business. I'm not going to turn it over to the body shop. There have been times in which I have tried to do that, and God has basically said, and I won't go into the, de the details, but God has said, absolutely not. You need to do it. And I've tried several times, and finally, I've just said, God, there, I, I've, for, I've tried this three times now. The paint on this bumper is about this thick, okay? I, I can't paint it one more time. This time has got to do it. Please, God, help me. I have no other recourse here. I have to do this. There's a, that's the only option here. I have to be able to match this paint right on. Usually you can blend the sides, but I couldn't on some of these bumpers. God, what am I going to do? And as I prayed, it took a long process, but I was able to nail the color. You're, you probably encountered obstacles, and you just thought, this is it. 
okay? You know, we've been able to make it this far, but this is it. We're going down now. I'm sorry, but going down as a family, that, that's not an option. God has got your back, but you have got to press in. The obstacles that you're facing today, you wrote down a goal that you believe God has put in your heart, and there are obstacles, guaranteed there are obstacles. If you haven't encountered any obstacles, I am, I am telling you right now, you are going to encounter obstacles. You truly will. And my question to you is, regardless of how large these obstacles are, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to want to lay down and give up and just say, God, I just can't do it? Yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I've wanted to. And God is saying, I'm sorry, but that is not an option here. That is not an option. And so my question to us is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to press in? <clears throat> Deuteronomy 1, 26 to 28. I want to just look there quickly because there is something that can happen in our hearts, if we're not careful, when we encounter these large obstacles and they seem immovable. Now, Deuteronomy is a recounting of the history of Israel as they're going through the desert, being freed from Egypt and on into the land. And Moses says, but you were unwilling to go up because they saw the giants in the land. The spies came back, 12 spies, you remember? And he says, you remember, you were unwilling to go up and battle them. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. You hear that? The Lord hates us. Yeah, we thought for 430 years God was going to give us the land of Canaan. We finally get there, and guess what? There's giants in the land. Forget this. Nothing doing. We can't do it. The obstacles are too big. We're just going to sit here in our tents and complain and say over and over, the Lord hates us. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? That you've been, you thought that you were going to be able to accomplish this goal or be able to see something awesome happen. And right before it did, boom, it just got shut down. It's like, what? God, what happened here? I thought I was going to get this promotion. And, and it was everyone who was talking about it. Yeah, Mike Curtis is going to go or whoever is going to get this promotion. And, and it, for sure it was going to be you. Nope. God. What, what, do you hate me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you allowed me to go through this? Church, isn't it so easy for us, just like the Israelites? The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Yep, Lord hates us. We can become so discouraged. It's been said, if you want to be distressed, look within. If you want to be defeated, look back. If you want to be distracted, look around. If you want to be dismayed, look ahead. If you want to be delivered, look up. Here's what I like to say, though. If you are looking up, then you can look within. And because Christ is forming character in you, not be distressed. You can look back, but because you learn from your sin or your mistakes, you won't be defeated. 
You can look around and see hope and compassion and not be distracted. You can look ahead and because with faith you are believing God for victory, not be dismayed. It's just that this road that we're traveling is not an easy one. And there are obstacles in the way. There are giants in the land and they have to go. Church, they have to go. This is the Lord speaking to some of your hearts. They have to go. And no, ladies, that's not your husband. I'm not talking about that. God, but something maybe God needs to change in your husband. But guess what? It probably needs to change in your heart too. That's the road to victory. It is never, in my experience, in, in the men and women of great faith throughout church history, it has never been an easy road. It has always required more than just routing the enemy, but pursuing him and destroying him, even if they are giants in the land. And I'm just going to conclude with this. Where are you in this journey? Have, have you allowed the enemy to discourage you? Let me just tell you, Joshua destroyed those Anakites. Joshua pursued the enemy. It took seven years, but he did win. They did clear the land. They did gain victory. They didn't just win the battles. They won the war. The problem was in future generations. They weren't men and women of faith like Joshua was. You can read about that in the book of Judges. Can you stand with me? Can, can, can we just pray and ask God right now if something needs to change in our hearts that we are allowing him to do that? If it's a mindset that needs to change, if it's this complaint, God, where are you? Do you hate me? Have you rejected me? Let's understand God is for us, but let's, let's not give up. Never. Never, 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 never give up. So Father, here is our prayer. You have captured our hearts. You have called us forward to pursue you. And we have encountered difficulties and struggles. And God, we have to confess there are times in which we wonder if you even love us. This is just where we're at. And I'm asking you, God, would you first heal our hearts? And would you instill hope there, God? Because you do love us. You are forming something in us that is so precious. God, I'm asking you, continue this process. Would you allow us though at least to see a little bit of that light at the end of the tunnel, God, please. Father, but would you instill faith in us today, right now? Heal our hearts. Whatever these obstacles are, because many of them are right here in us, in my heart, God, heal us, set us free, that we can be the men and the women that you need in this day, in this generation, to see this nation won back to Christ. To see my family, my neighbors, my co-workers won to Christ. Change me, God. Empower me today, right now. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.